Well, good morning. Very encouraged by your, uh, your singing this morning. I uh, <clears throat> stopped by on the front row before I came up and was singing next to, to Danny. If you don't know Danny, he's been a member here for a long time. I, I asked him if I could share this, and he said, yeah, that's fine. And, uh, Danny is visually impaired, um, and one of the things I love about Danny is every time I say hello to him, he goes, it's great to see you, and uh, <laughs> he, makes it a, he makes it a joke. And uh, one of the things that Danny talks about often is how he can't wait until we get to glory when he'll see his God. And um, he always, he has that heart. And he, he leaned over and he said, uh, I'd sing this song right now if I knew the words. And I said, well, it's about, uh, it's called Be Thou My Vision. We're asking God to help us to see. And he said, I'm ready for that day. And, uh, and that's, that's true, you know. I mean, in many ways, all of us are not much different than, than Danny in the way that we now come by faith, trusting in what God says. We hear his word and we receive it into our hearts and we trust and someday, soon and very soon, all of us will see in a way that none of us ever have before. May the Lord. Danny, ready for some of that? Me too, brother. Let's go. Um, hasten that day, Lord Jesus. Well, we're going to pray before we dive into Acts chapter 19 and ask for God's help here in this, uh, this passage of Scripture that we're calling the Gospel Riot. And you'll see why here in just a moment. Let's, let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, we come to you. And Lord, we, we thank you for our brother Danny. Thank you for his yeah, constant encouragement of the way he seeks you. Um, and Lord, might we all come recognizing our inability to, to see reality apart from your intervention. Lord, we are all seeing in a mirror dimly. And we need you today to indeed be our vision. Would you give us now as we come to your word eyes to see it? Would you help it to not just be words on a page, but would you help us to know that it's words from you? Would you give us ears to hear it? That it would not just be some guy up front rambling for a while, but that we would, we would hear what you have to say, including me. That we would, we would hear from your word, your, your voice, and that we would be changed by it. Would you give us minds to understand it and, and, and affections that, that love you, the, the author, that we would not just love understanding a text better or getting some historical background or kind of understanding an outline, but that we would, be, we would be enamored by you, that the sermon would be a means of seeing you and knowing you and loving you and being so enthralled with you that we'd be willing to endure any sort of affliction that might come our way. So God, would you strengthen us as your people today? We pray for those who are here this morning who don't yet know you. Oh, might you meet them where they are and show them their need for this glorious God who we've sung of this morning and, and how willing you are for them to, to come. That you do not delight in the death of the wicked, your word says, but that you would, you would hope that all would turn and, and be saved. And Lord, we pray that you might use your word to that end. So meet us wherever we are in our journey and help us truly to have uh, be our vision through your word for your glory and our good the glory of your name among the nations. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Acts 19. As you're turning there, I'll tell you about something that happened on December 2nd, 2016. Jakarta, Indonesia, there was a gathering of some over 200,000 Muslims gathered into the, the city square. They were praying in unison out loud. They were chanting verses from the Quran out loud. 
Many of them, most of them dressed in all white. And the reason they had gathered is that they were, they were calling at least for the resignation and many were calling for the, the death of Barsuki Punama. Barsuki is, was the Christian governor of the largely Muslim nation. And he had been accused of blasphemy because of some comments that he had made about the Quran. And it had sent off a firestorm in the nation. And hundreds of thousands of Muslims gathered in the city square chanting for him to die. You can look this up online. The pictures are striking. Could you imagine what that would be like? 200,000 people gathered in a city square calling for your death. What would you, what would you feel? What would you be tempted to do or to say? Would you be filled with fear? Would you be tempted to, to step up and to, to recant and to, to, to say, no, there's, there's no God but but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. What would you you'd be tempted to do? I have no idea what that would be like. I pray the Lord would give courage to any of us in that day. I think what we would want to do is we would want to look to God's word, to the words of the Lord Jesus who said, I am with you always. In days that are enjoyable and in days that are marked by affliction, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And especially in moments like this. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. I encourage you to pray often for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. As we come to Acts chapter 19 this morning, I might... I ask us to consider what might God give, how might he give us courage when we face, maybe not something as severe as that, but as we seek to take the gospel message of Jesus into our neighborhoods, into our families. The holiday season is coming up and many of us will be around family members who, who think that our, our following of Jesus is, is crazy, who think that we're in some sort of cult or whatever it may be or into our, our workplaces, and wherever God gives us opportunity. What, what kind of things can we hold on to in the face of affliction and opposition and persecution that we might remain faithful and carry on in, in the mission? This is what we're going to see in Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. If we're going to summarize our, our, our text this morning, it might go something like this. Persevere in gospel mission despite violent opposition. Persevere in gospel mission despite violent opposition. Paul is going to be in the city of Ephesus where he's been for a while now and things are gonna get wild and it's gonna get scary and a riot is gonna break out and we're gonna see how Paul responds in, in the midst of it. To unpack this big idea, we have two, uh, two kind of points. The first is persevering gospel mission, verses 21 through 22. And then secondly, 
persevere through opposition. That's 23 through, through the end. So persevere in gospel mission, the first two verses, and then persevere through opposition, 23 and following. Let's dive in here, verses 21 through 22. Persevere in gospel mission. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So this gives a bit of a transition from what we saw last week. You'll remember last week there was a, a mini revival that had broken out in Ephesus and all these people brought their, their books of magic and set them on fire as a public repentance of we're turning away from, from the witchcraft of this world, or away from our, our, our worship of, of Artemis, and we are, we, are, we are announcing this former allegiance to this false god, and now we are going to follow Jesus. They had been born again. They became disciples. They were believers. They became followers of, of Christ. And Paul here... After all of that, he, he commits to, to gospel ambition. We see an ambition in Paul that is admirable. It says here that he resolved in the spirit to do something. He, the word resolve there means simply to decide, to make up his mind. The idea of him doing it in the spirit, uh, it could mean two things. It's either under the guidance of the spirit or he reser- uh, resolved in his own spirit the first option seems most likely when you look at the way that the, the book of Acts is, is working. The Holy Spirit is the one who is guiding the church and empowering the church. It seems that the Spirit is leading him to, to do this. He resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and on to Jerusalem and, and to Rome. Notice here he desires to pass through some, some previously visited places. He wants to go back, he always backtracks to meet with the churches and to make sure things are still well there, to to further the the work. And he he thinks about going here to to Macedonia. He plans to go by, in Macedonia was was Berea and Philippi and Thessalonica, some churches that have been planted there. And then he's going to go off through Achaia, it says, that's where Corinth is. And he's going to pass through those regions on his way to to Jerusalem. Now, Now, why to Jerusalem? Well, Probably a number of reasons. This is gospel ground zero, right? This is where, uh, the, where Jesus' ministry was primarily focused and where the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost and it's out from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, outermost parts of the earth that, that the gospel is flowing. It's, a, it's got a home base for many of the, the apostles are, are still there. So he certainly wants to go there to fellowship and to, to worship. But there's also something that's not here in the text, but you do see through the letters of Paul that may also be part of what he's, he's doing on this trip. You'll remember that the saints in Jerusalem are facing persecution. Because of their allegiance to Jesus as Messiah, they've lost friends, they've lost family members, they've lost jobs, and when you lose all of that, you are what? Poor, you have nothing. You've lost, you've lost everything. So one of the themes that comes up in the, in the letters that Paul's writing to the Gentile churches is we need to care for our, our brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. And he's regularly, we see in Acts at least twice, taking up offerings among the Gentile churches so that he and some other brothers can carry back those offerings to help uh, the, the saints in Jerusalem. And I think that's probably what's happening. It shows them in Galatians, First and Second Corinthians, and also in, in Romans. 
So he's, he's certainly going to be going to, to fellowship, but I also think he's planning to drop off a gift of support to them, which is just a good reminder for us to always be mindful of, of suffering saints around the world and when we have opportunity to, to rally together help for them. This is one of the things that Christians do for one another. Well, after his time in Jerusalem, then where does he want to go? What's it say there? It says he wants to go to, to Rome. Rome was the Washington, D.C. of the ancient world. It was the, the hub of power and, and authority. But he's not going for that. <laughs> he's going because he's heard there's Christians there. The gospel has spread to Rome. Of all places, there's Christians in Rome. <laughs> when, I, when I lived in Texas, People heard about, when I said I was going to D.C., they're like, are there any Christians there? Um, <laughs> it's just a perception, right? Um, well, it's the same kind of idea. In this place of power and authority and such just worldliness, the gospel has gone and people have been, have been born again. And now Paul hadn't been there yet, but according to his, le- his letter to the Roman church, he desired to go there for, for two reasons. Romans 1.15, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. So he had, he had heard of the work, and he can't wait to get in and, and to, to, to sow some more seed and do some more watering and to see gospel growth happen there. But then also, Romans 15.23, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul says, I want to come. I want to fellowship with you all. I want to do some word ministry. We're going to build one another up. We're going, to, we're going to care for one another. But then I would like you guys to work together to fund a mission trip where I'm going to go to Spain. Spain was the ends of the earth in those days, as far as humanity could even think that, that people would be. Now, we're unsure if Paul ever made it there. There's debate about that. But I think what what I want us to see, the reason I'm pausing and slowing down in this section, is I want us to see what fills Paul's heart all the time. This man has gospel ambition. He has gospel ambition. What burns in him is that there's a world that's going to hell and there's a savior that is so good. His name is Jesus and he has come and he's died for sinners and he's rose from dead for sinners and he is now Lord of glory and he uses his authority to forgive sinners so they can be reconciled to God and God's name can be made known among the nations. That burns in him. He wants people to be rescued from their rebellion and to give God the honor that he so deserves. And that's one of the reasons I think the Holy Spirit has, leads Luke to give us the book of Acts. Certainly there's other reasons, and he's writing to Theophilus and all this, but one of the enduring reasons for the church to study and to, to preach and to teach and to, to, to reason with one another from the book of Acts is to stoke gospel ambition in our hearts. We, we see men and women in this book whose, whose hearts are so overwhelmed with the grace of God that has been given to them. They're so in love with the Lord Jesus that they are constantly going to be risking their lives no matter what it's going to cost in order to make sure the people who do not yet know, know. That's why we study this. 
So just to be really clear, we don't study through books of the Bible just so that we'll understand them. Understanding is intended to move toward toward action, toward, toward changing of our hearts, toward the God who gives us this word. These brothers and sisters throughout the book of, of Acts are risking their life day in and day out to advance the gospel. So my question for us as we're studying this, and us as a church generally, but you and me individually is, have you recently given thought to how you can use your life to further the gospel around the world? Among your neighbors, uh, locally, like with, with, even with Mount Vernon, with the church plant that, that, that just has been, been sent out. Among your co-workers. Have you prayed recently, God, my life is not my own. It was, I've been bought with a price, the blood of Christ. I am yours. You made me. Ephesians 2.10 says you have good works for me to walk in. I am surrendered for you to do whatever you want in me. You can have my career. You can have my life. You have my family. You have my plans. You have my future. You have my body. You have everything. I'm yours. Have your way. Brothers and sisters, that is how a Christian's to live. Romans, says, Romans 12 says we're to be living sacrifices. Regularly dying, saying, Lord, I am yours. Anything you want, I'll do. Just give me grace and give me strength and please give me some friends to do it with. Those are the kind of prayers that I, I try to regularly pray. So for instance, is there a DRBC missions partner that you pray for on the regular and that you, you support and that maybe then maybe you want to go visit when, when some of these short-term trips that are, that are coming up. Or maybe have you asked God recently if, if he wants you to go and to move, to go join one of those works around the world. This week, tonight, actually after the members meeting, kicks off a week of prayer and fasting for our church. If you, if you don't know about that, just email info at drbc.org. We'll send you the link there's a letter from the elders talking about why we do this. It's just a time for us to set aside normal routines, normal things that we depend upon in order to seek God and to ask him to have his way in us. It'd be a wonderful week for you to set aside maybe your lunch hour, or your breakfast time, or your dinner hour, or some of those in order to just seek the Lord. Phones off, TVs off, everything off, you and the Lord with an open heart saying, God, create in me gospel ambition that is willing to do anything that you want me to do. Paul is persevering in gospel mission here. This is what he's about. You'll notice also here that he has some, he's commissioning some gospel ambassadors as he does this. So he is not, he does not have a limited view where he's like the, the, the guy that everything has to happen through. He's constantly pouring into other men and women so that they can carry on the work because he's not omnipresent like God is. He's, he's replicating himself, which is the, the, the call of the Great Commission, to be disciples who make disciples. And, and we see him here um, in verse 22. Paul sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, uh, Timothy and Erastus. So Timothy is one of his most well-known uh, partners in, in the gospel, shows up in some 12 New Testament books. So he was a faithful dude. And then you had Erastus, 
who uh, in Romans uh, 16, we learn that he's a city treasurer. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we learn that he ministered in Corinth. So these are some guys that Paul has run with, he's done gospel ministry with, and he has sent these two brothers ahead of him because he's going to, verse 22, stay in Asia for a while. We're unsure why. He's, he makes plans, and he's like, hold up, you guys roll out, I'll catch up. He has something to do. We're not sure what it, what it may be. It may be just to prepare, maybe to finish up getting the collection, set things in order with the church. She has some more things to need to do before he rolls out, not sure. During this time, we do know that he wrote 1 Corinthians, though. Um, this would have been a letter that he was penning, so he's always thinking about other churches also. Um, but, but just to notice here, Paul is always pouring into others and entrusting them with opportunities to further the gospel and to partner with them as he does this. This is a great commission principle that is not just something for apostles and it's not just something for pastors. If you're a Christian and you're like, what does God want me to do with my life? This is it. It's to take his word, study it for yourself, to share it with others, to live it out among others and them with you, and you help each other follow Jesus. That's, that's what the Christian life is about. And as we do, we try and bring as many people who don't know Jesus with us. We're sharing with, with non-believers. So we're evangelizing and discipling. This is what the Christian life is about. It's about making the gospel known to the ends of the earth. Gospel ambition for ourselves and pouring it into others that, that many might, might go. So I would just ask you, who, who is helping you to, to follow Jesus? Who is helping you grow in your walk with Jesus? Is there someone pouring into you? And who are you investing in to help them in their walk with Jesus? This is, this is what God calls all believers to. And if you think, I don't even know how to do that. Well, guess what? That is the pastor's jobs here. The Bible says that our job description is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So if you don't know how to do this, we, that's why we're here. We want, to help, we want to help you to do that. So come and let us know, but pray that God would, would use you. I just want us to see those first two verses here, that this He's persevering in gospel mission and that he has this gospel ambition. This is what's on his mind. It's where he's going. And that's gonna help because there's about to be a wave of opposition that's gonna come in. And it could throw him off course, but we're gonna see that's not what happens. But rather he's gonna weather the storm and persevere through. So we're gonna come back to this persevering gospel mission at the end. Now, the second thing. Persevere through opposition. Persevere through opposition. So his two buddies have rolled out. He's hanging back. Everything's good until it's not. Verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together and with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be uh, deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. 
It says that no little disturbance about the way sprung up. So as the gospel is spreading in this city, so has the panic of, of the people. The gospel is changing things in the city. They just had a big book burning session. And a disturbance now stirs up. The, the, the word means agitation or commotion or distress. There's panic in the city concerning what? Verse 23. Concerning whom? The way. The way, again, this is a, uh, a name given to Christians because they follow Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father but through him, and that he's the one who shows the narrow way to glory, right? So Christians have, have, have been known throughout the, the years, as um, throughout the centuries, as the way because they're, cre- they're preaching Christ as Lord, and it has, well, it has upset Ephesus. You see, this book burning happens, people are repenting, they're getting baptized, the churches are starting to fill up, and now all of a sudden, this, the city's business district is buzzing. God's message has, well, it has unsettled the market. Silver prices are plummeting like Zoom stock. Twitter is, is trending, hashtag away with the way, right? Warren Buffett and Elon Musk have been, have been brought in for some, some, you know, some, some counsel. We've got trouble. There's a cultural crisis going on. Ephesus is in an uproar. And up steps Demetrius, verse 24. Now he's a silversmith who made shrines for Artemis. What that means is they're, they're little replicas of the temple and of the goddess. And he would make these little coins or these little statues and he would sell them. And he was kind of like the godfather of all of this, evidently. And he's, he would sell them to travelers who come in, and he would bring it into the temple, and it would be kind of a, a blessing for Artemis to see that you have this, and it would be, you know, enhance the worship. And then you could also take these little things home, and you put them in your house so that her blessing will be there, and you can get a pack of 10, and then put them in all your rooms, you know, like, or whatever, how he's doing it. But, like, he's making money off of, of this. This is, this is his thing, Right? So he, he says, so this God's not only an idolater, but he's an idol maker. So he's not just worshiping idols, but he's, he's selling them, making them and selling them. Well, he comes in, he says, all right, fellas, we got a problem. As you know, a couple days ago, this, this Paul guy, he's been preaching that Jesus is Lord and there's no other gods. And believe it or not, a bunch of magicians and a bunch of Artemis worshipers, they have, they they believed it, and they bought in, and they brought all their books, and it burned it, and I don't know if you caught it or not, but the paper said it's like $5 million worth of, of merchandise that got set on fire outside the city. This is, this is bad news, guys. He thinks the writing is on the wall for them too, right? Verse 25, you know this is how we make our wealth, verse 26. Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Revivals are breaking out all over the place in this, this city. And verse 26, he is saying that gods made with hands are not gods. This, by the way, is a major theme throughout the entire Bible, that there is no God but Yahweh. There is no God but the God of, of Israel. There is no God but the God that can be known only through, through Jesus, the Son of God. All other gods, the Bible says, are demons, 
posing behind myths that people devise or idols that people design. They're all imposters. And the whole message of the Bible in one sense is that all other gods are false gods. There's no other God but the one true God. This is, if you remember the Exodus, you remember the, 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 the plagues? I don't know if you know this or not, but the plagues, the 10 plagues, are the public assassination of the gods of Egypt. Oh, you think the Nile brings life? I'm gonna slit, I'm, I'm gonna kill, sorry, that was too graphic. I'm gonna kill him and he's gonna bleed out. I'm gonna turn him to blood. Oh, you think frogs are the symbol of the fertility goddess? I'm gonna kill all your frogs and they're gonna stink. How you like your God now? Like God is just, he is, he is obliterating all of their gods publicly. He's saying, there's no other God but me. You're gonna let my people go. You remember when the Philistines, when they snagged the Ark of the Covenant later on? They took the Ark of the Covenant and they brought it before Dagon. They had a little party like, Dagon beat him, right? And they're like, oh, this is gonna be great. Well, in the morning they walk in and what happened to Dagon? Dagon went, Dagon, he went down, broke his hands off. And then you remember what they did? They propped him back up, duct taped him. <laughs> Next morning they come in, what happened? Fell down again, this time his head rolled off, poor God, you know. <laughs> it's just like God is like, these gods are, they're not real gods, they're fools. What, don't chase those things. And the pinnacle of the Bible is that God comes among us in Jesus. He's God incarnate. And he died and he rose to show that he is Lord over all other supposed gods. There's none like him. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Whether you're in heaven or earth or under the earth, it don't matter, Jesus is it. Well, that message came to Ephesus. And it is flipping the city upside down. People are believing it. Demetrius, is, he's tripping. Verse 27, there is danger that not only this trait of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now Artemis, we've heard a lot of talk about her already. Uh, she was the mother goddess of fertility. It is believed that, that she sent uh, a message to the earth in a meteor that came from Jupiter that when it crashed and it was picked up, that there was an inscription on it with her image and that it was a symbol to the world that they were to, to worship her as, as the giver of, of life. And Artemis was like the hub city for Artemis worship. Like if you were about Artemis, everybody, you're gonna make a pilgrimage to Ephesus at some time because they had like the main attraction of Artemis worship, also known as Diana. What was that, anybody know what it was? That's right, it was the temple. It was the temple of Artemis. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was this, this temple to Artemis. It was so large, it was larger than an American football field. Just picture a temple like that with some 120 columns that were six feet around and 60 feet high. And people flocked from all over the world to worship this, this goddess. And in light of present company, I will not go into all sorts of detail here, but let me just tell you that the worship of this goddess was vile. It was, it was particularly centered around gross, grotesque sorts of sexual immorality, including temple prostitution and all kinds of other stuff. And, and devotion to this goddess um, was, it was woven into every aspect of the city's life 
and economy. It would be like when you think of Paris, you think of the Eiffel Tower, right? When you think of Rome, you think of visiting the Colosseum. If you're going to go to New York, maybe a main thing you're going to see is the Statue of Liberty. You got something else there, but you know what I'm saying. So they got, they got trinkets and T-shirts and bumper stickers for your chariots and all that kind of stuff, right? They're selling about just little statues of, of Artemis. She, I mean, she is the money maker. She's a cash cow, okay? Demetrius and the Artemis Trade Union have gotten together here and they are bugging out because this gospel of Jesus is threatening their goddess, her preeminence, and their pockets, right? Now, I do think it's, I think it's helpful for us to slow down and just consider here for a moment that Demetrius was a real man. Somebody you would have probably seen in a store. Somebody you may bump into at, at the coffee shop of your choice. Maybe somebody who would have visited, you know, places that you, you visit. He's a, He's, he's a man, a real man. It's easy sometimes to let the black and white pages fool you. He's a, he's a real person, though. A person who was created to worship God and love the one true God. But he, he is so, and, and he's so, and the gospels come to him. Like, he's heard about this. But what is it that hinders him from following the one true God? Loves his money. He's so greedy. He's so in love with, with money that he's unable to value what is truly valuable. Jesus had warned that you cannot love God and money. And that's true. So rather than obey the gospel and surrender all of his life and whatever it might cost him to trust in Christ, Demetrius worships a God that encourages his greed. Which, by the way, is going to be really clear. This is what people do when they don't like what God calls them to do. They create another God in their own image who gives them a pass to do whatever their flesh desires. I did this with Jesus before I was a Christian. I had a whole nother Jesus that was not the Jesus of the Bible. He was this, you know, this kind, benevolent, which is true, but only kind and benevolent, you know, abstract deity that I could call on whenever I got in trouble, or he's kind of like my caddy if I needed some advice on what to do or whatever it may be. But he was simply there to, to bankroll my life and to make my life enjoyable so I can get as much out of it as I want. And if I sinned, he knew it was fine. It's not a big deal. I wouldn't even thought of his sin. I don't think he would have either. I just had this whole other Jesus. I called him Jesus, but he wasn't Jesus. This is what all of us do. We are idol makers. He has found a God that will let him indulge in his sexual immorality and that will let him just love money. And that's why he loves this, this thing so much. Which, by the way, I think should contrast. If you're going to contrast his affection for the world and all the stuff with something earlier, what might you contrast it with? The believers in the last section who brought all their books and said, burn it, 
We're done with it. We're following Jesus. I don't care about the cost. We're following him. And notice here, he's crafty. In, this, in his deception, he's crafty too, right? He pitches the protection of his money lust with religion and patriotic language. Not only trade, but Artemis and all of Asia, which I care so much about, right? He loves his money. Now, I do want to say here that every culture has beautiful qualities that commend God, and every culture has corrupted qualities that offend God. And, and the, the, the gospel of Jesus confronts the idols of whatever culture it invades, and sinners do not like it. Remember when Jerusalem, when the gospel came to Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the corrupted temple worship, Jesus is calling out, and what do they do to Stephen for that message? You will shut your mouth and I'll put a stone in it. When the gospel goes out to Lystra, and, and they called Paul and Barnabas, Zeus and, and Hermes, saying the gods have come down among us. You remember what they called them? They called those gods vain things. So they took stones and they tried to kill Paul. And then the gospel goes out to Philippi, and you've got that fortune-telling uh, demon-possessed girl, right? And as soon as the demon gets cast out, they're like, our money, what are we going to do? And they were brought in and beaten and arrested. Athens, the unknown God, right? Jesus, Paul comes in and says, Jesus is the, the unknown God. Turn from all of your idols. And it gets mocked and berated there. Every culture, when the gospel comes in, the gospel is going to turn on the lights and it's gonna show there is sin happening here that needs to be repented of. Not everything in every culture is sinful. There's some things that do are beautiful and commend God, and those should be embraced and delighted in. But every culture has, has sins that need to be repented of. And let me say it this way. If, if your gospel is not a threat to your culture's sin, then it isn't the biblical gospel. If your gospel is not a threat to your culture's sin, then it is not the biblical gospel. Jesus will not have any rivals in any culture. He, can, he confronts every spiritual, social, political, and economic reality in every culture, and he says, repent. Don't think he doesn't do the same thing for the United States of America. The idea that Jesus is the only way to heaven and that if you follow any other way, including following your heart, it leads to an eternal judgment of an eternal hell. Proclaim that and see how our pluralism in our country responds. Or, or tell people that being a Republican or a Democrat does not give you any favor before God and that he favors neither party. See if people's political idolatry doesn't boil up. They're all corrupt, Jesus would say. It's my kingdom. My kingdom's not of this world. You preach that and see if people don't trip out. Jesus does this when the gospel comes in and says there is deep-seated racism in our country. And many of the ways that our culture is trying to fix it, including ways the churches try to fix it, is is worldly and it's not working. Or try to preach that Jesus is Lord over sexuality and your body and your, your sex life. That, that, that sex outside of marriage in, in any form is, is sin. 
that homosexuality is sin. That, that a baby that's in a womb is a life. We can go on and on and on with conversations of gender and transgender. You, the gospel is going to come into every single culture, including ours, and it is going to start flipping things upside down. And it's people love their sin. Now, I want to be very clear. I think there's a wise and shrewd way to deal with this. So all of those things I just listed there, other than the first one about Jesus being the only way, I would typically not lead with that in my evangelism. So oftentimes when I want to talk to somebody about Jesus and they're like, oh, yeah, well, well, I'm gay. So what do you think about that? I'd be like, okay, well, I'm straight. What do you think about that? I was like, I'm not, I'm not here to talk about that right now. That's, I don't think your sexuality is, is the, the main issue right now. The main issue is what do you think about Jesus? The, the main issue is do you believe that there is a God? And, and do you believe, and if there were a God, would you want to hear from him? And if not, why not? What are you afraid of losing? But what if he says that what he has is best? Like, all, there's nobody in the world who's not broken sexually. All of us are. That's not your main issue right now. The main issue is, do you believe in Jesus? And are you willing to bow a knee before him and to say, my life is yours. I need to be forgiven of my sin. It doesn't mean you don't dodge real questions and, and have those conversations. But I just want to give a little balance there. But we do... We do see here that the gospel is coming in and it is flipping tables like Jesus did, right? Well, verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 29, so the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. So it's like the beehive got kicked. And all of a sudden, the whole city is in an uproar. The gospel's call to repent of idolatry and to follow the way of Jesus has provoked great offense in them. And they were enraged. Just like many of us feel sometimes when we hear gospel truth and it, it, it makes us mad. And they're crying out. They respond, oh yeah, no, no, no. Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the, the crowd here rallies to defend their beloved goddess. And as the city gets uh, whipped up into this, this frenzy, fingers get pointed at two men who are associates of, uh, of the gospel message, Gaius and Aristarchus, right? They're, they're Macedonians. These guys, you can, you can find more about them throughout the, the New Testament. These are, these are brothers that had, had ministered with Paul. Everybody had seen them with Paul. And, and the crowd sees them and they're like, those are gospel dudes. Those are gospel dudes, grab them. And that's what they, they did. They seized them and drug them into the theater. Now to get a picture of this, you can look this up on, online, but the, 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 not now, later. The, the theater in, uh, in Ephesus was, was pretty enormous. It was, a, it was a semi-circular structure built into a hillside that seated some 25,000 people. It was one of the largest in the ancient world. So think Nats Park seats 41,000. So just a little less than half, but that's, that's still, it's ginormous, right? Well, these brothers here are in great danger because the crowd is rushed together. Now, the last time you see that phrase rushed together, you know where it was in the book of Acts? It was in Jerusalem 
when Stephen stood up and said, y'all are idol worshipers, you need to follow Jesus, and they rushed together to seize him and to kill him. I think Paul, I think uh, Luke is using, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is using that same word here to highlight the intent of these people. They grabbed them, they're gonna kill these guys. They're gonna put them on stage. We're gonna say, you don't think Artemis? We'll show you, we'll tear you limb from limb. Verse 30. <laughs> now we, don't look. Verse 30, what do you think Paul's thinking? Paul's thinking, ah, time to go get an espresso. Like, you think that's what he's thinking? Think it's time he's, he's gonna roll out? That's not Paul, if you've been reading along. <laughs> But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, <laughs> I love that. He's like, there's a crowd, let's go. <laughs> the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So Paul says, hey, listen, we got a good crowd for a gospel message here, let's go. I've got one ready, he's always ready to preach. But there's two groups that grab him and try and push him to the side so he doesn't get killed. The first are the disciples. These are the believers he's been ministering to, all right? So this is a small group. His small group's like, Paul, you're tripping. Do not go in there, please. And then the others are these Asiarchs. Now, these are prominent political officials in Asia. I want to assume that they are not believers here because he, he distinguishes them from the disciples. These aren't disciples. They are, they're government officials, which I just wanna give you a newsflash. It is possible to be a gospel Christian, like a legit born-again Christian, and have friends who are not Christians because you've lived your life in such a way that, that your gospel is not just filled with hate. Like, I know that's, the, in, our, in our culture, it's this idea that no, 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 if, either if you're gonna be a Christian, you're gonna be so much of a Christian of a jerk that nobody's gonna like you. But that's, that's not the sort of Christian that Paul was. He was winsome, he loved people. He was out for their good. He cared about, about them. So I just wanna say, brothers and sisters, wherever God places you, be the sort of Christian that loves people. Be courageous in your word. Paul's not gonna be somebody who's gonna be holding back on gospel truth. Preach the gospel, preach it courageously, be bold, but do it in a way that is loving and, and, and kind and charitable. I think you see these, these people respected him and cared about him. They didn't want him to get tore up because he meant something to them. Pray that God might give many in this congregation those sorts of friendships with, with political figures that there might be good. It would come of it. Well, verse 32, now some cried out one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not even know why they had come together. <laughs> some of the crowd uh, promoted Alexander uh, or prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put for, uh, forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. He's likely being put forward by the Jews to say, hey, just want everybody to know, Paul's a Christian, we're not Christian, so be nice to us, get him. That's probably what's going on here. But when they, verse 34, recognized that he was a Jew, it didn't help. For about two hours, they cried out all the more with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. These guys are not in any mood to have religious discussions about any other gods other than Artemis. For two hours, can you imagine? The city filled, chanting, two hours, and you're a Christian in the midst of it. Can you imagine what that felt like? Have you ever been in the middle of a riot before? It's scary, things are out of control. I was in, 
I was in, uh, in Paris when France won the World Cup. I won't tell you which time to date me. Uh, but they, the city went crazy, flipping cars, setting things on fire, crowd. I mean, you get caught up in the middle of that. It is scary. And they were happy. <laughs> like, you get caught up where you're the target. You're our brother, that, that governor, where you've got 200,000 people chanting, blasphemer, kill him. Like, that's terrifying. Verse 35, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? That's a thing from Jupiter. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and to do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Pause. That's actually not true. Um, so that is some fake news that, uh, because the, the Christian gospel is that all other gospels are, are false gospels. All their gods are false gods. We've seen that all the way through the book of Acts. So he's... He's either here unclear on what they taught, or he's just trying to be a good politician and downplay the situation for crowd management's sake, okay? Because he knows if they keep rioting, it's trouble. Verse 38, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let him bring charges against uh, one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said this, and when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. He's like, listen, y'all, call Judge Judy, get this figured out in the courts. All right, because we can't keep out here doing this. Because if Rome hears that we're rioting, it's trouble. Because if there's one thing Rome doesn't like, it's their cities rioting. Rome, Rome demands three things, order, allegiance, and taxes. Which, by the way, is why they're always going after Jesus about the allegiance and the taxes, right? Should we pay you know, taxes to Caesar, all that kind of stuff? Well, anyway, this guy knows if we riot, we're going to die. We don't want Rome sending the soldiers up in here and bringing peace. Like, that's not going to end well. Which, by the way, I just want to say, this is, a, this is an example of a good way that government is supposed to work. This guy's not a believer, and he uses his position of authority to, to administer peace, and it works, and it all calms down. At the same time, I don't want us to think that this guy's the hero of the story. This is also an act of mercy from, from God. On the surface, this, this appears to be human prudence, but that prudence serves God's purposes. He's not done in this city. He's not done with those brothers yet. Now, I don't know about you, but it's easy to see. Could you imagine being a Christian in that city while that's going on? That's the spiritual temperature. Could you imagine what that was like? I, I, I would imagine it would be tempting to think that's the end of the gospel witness in this city. There's so much opposition. There's threats at every turn. There's a chance of another riot, and there probably will be bloodshed next time. God, though, was not done building his church in Ephesus. In fact, you're going to notice if you read the rest of the New Testament, <laughs> Ephesus became the, the most prominent Gentile church in the New Testament. 
even in the midst of this sort of hostility. There's a letter to the Ephesians. You got First and Second Timothy, which are about ministering in Ephesus. You've got First, Second, and Third John, which are about ministering in Ephesus. You've got Revelation chapter three, where it's about ministering in Ephesus. Jesus shows up. There's a church that's preserved there. And it doesn't just preserve, but it survives. It doesn't survive, but it thrives. The gospel ministry doesn't get stamped out just because there's opposition. They persevere in gospel mission, which brings us full circle. They persevere in gospel mission despite violent opposition. Look in conclusion at chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. So, why ever Paul stayed back, God used it. God knew what that church was going to need. They were going to need a word from Paul to encourage them to keep on keeping on. So, he takes a couple minutes here and he, he sends for the disciples. Listen, we're going to have an impromptu meeting. So, it goes out on the Google group, the group me, their text thread. They're like, hey, Paul's going to meet up with the church. Let's gather together. This isn't part of the normal itinerary here. There's a unique need for this flock to receive encouragement. Now, I wish that we could see what he said to them here. That would be a sweet word. I do think, though, when you look at letters to other churches in the New Testament who faced very similar sorts of things, I'm going to propose what, what I would have said and what I think we see Paul seeing elsewhere. And these will be our final words of encouragement for us this morning. The first is, I think you would have said, do not flee from the mission. Do not flee from the mission. And Delray Baptist Church, this is for us. As we are persevering in gospel mission, don't flee from it when opposition arises. Do not flee from the mission. I'm certain there's a real temptation to retreat here. And, and true, there may be times to like, hey, let, let's, let's be quiet for a little bit. Let's settle down. Let's let at least the riot clear. Let's give it a week or something before we go out and start evangelizing again. There, that's, that's, that can be wise. That's fine. That's not cowardly. But Paul, I'm certain, encouraged them to not lose focus, reminding them something like this. The people are ripe for the gospel in this, this place. Carry on the mission. And he probably gave them words like these from Jesus. When Jesus saw the crowds, think of the crowd, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees a rioting crowd like that and he has compassion on them because he says they're just lost people. They're doing what lost people do. They're blind. Everything they love is being threatened. So I think Paul would say to us in the midst of it, pray for God to give you compassion toward those that might oppress you. And then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So pray, pray that God would, would stir up in our day among us, in your heart, in my heart, in our hearts, a willingness, a gospel ambition that's not gonna withdraw from, from the mission. Don't flee from the mission. Also tied to that, pray and labor toward the end of idolatrous, corrupt services through the ministry of the gospel. 
To be clear, do not think that the mission of the church is to redeem culture. That's, that's not the case. Souls are redeemed, and then those redeemed souls can be sent out into the culture and do some changing. And we, we want to see that. But pray that God might use some of us in unique positions that we have to see wicked things that are instituted be overturned. It's a grace to all people, and it's, a, it's glorifying to God. And we see that happening here. Like this town is getting flipped upside down and they're tearing down idolatrous practices. So don't retreat from it. Don't flee from the mission. Second of three, do not fear opponents. I don't know about you, but I'd have been spooked, right? I mean, nobody died, but it easily could have happened. Maybe this week when you're doing some of your, your, your extended Bible reading, read First and Second Thessalonians. It's a very, very similar situation. The gospel came there and persecution just swept through so much that Paul and, uh, I forget who was with him, probably Timothy, whoever it was, had to flee. And then Paul's writing letters back to them to encourage them to not give up in the midst of the fire. Read through those letters and gain some of that same encouragement. And consider the words of Jesus. Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So don't flee from the mission and do not fear opponents. God is with you. And then finally, don't forsake Jesus. In the midst of opposition, you will be tempted to turn around, not just to retreat from the mission, and not just to fear opponents, but to just say, I'm out, and forsake Jesus. Satan deals with, in fear. He wants you to be afraid. He wants you to cower back and to retreat, not just from mission, but from Christ himself. I mean, this, this wave of fiery opposition that's proclaiming Artemis and all this propaganda, it, it Especially for some young believers, it could have been really confusing for them. Maybe they start wondering, did I really make the right decision? Should I have really burned those books? Did I, did, am I doing the right way? This is where Jesus would say, truly, truly, Mark chapter 10, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Brothers and sisters, no matter what opposition may arise, don't forsake Jesus. Cling to him he will be with you to the end of the age. He will help us no matter what may come. Persevere in gospel mission despite violent opposition because Jesus is with us. Lord, have mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would help us to have gospel courage. Lord, that you would give us wisdom of how we might lean upon you for strength, for wisdom, for help, Lord, we need you. We are prone to fear and to anxiety and to, Lord, self-preservation. Lord, I pray you would meet each of us and that you would fill us with your spirit and help us. Lord, pray if there's anybody here who, who's worshiping a, a false view of you, that they would see it and they would turn from it and believe in Christ as the one true God. And for the rest of us, would you give us, would you give us courage to proclaim the name of Jesus no matter what opposition may arise? Oh, Lord, you are able. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.